Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 248, Pius VI. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. Today's Pope was born on Christmas Day, 1717, in Cesena, in northern Italy, to a family of poor local nobility. His name was Giovanni Angelo Braschi, and he was the first child of eight brothers and sisters. He studied at the university in Cesena, and he graduated with a degree in canon and civil law at a fairly young age. His uncle worked for Cardinal Rufo, who was the legate in charge of Ferrara for the Holy See, and the young Giovanni went to finish his legal studies there with his uncle. He impressed the cardinal that his uncle worked for enough that he was named his principal secretary. When Cardinal Rufo was named the dean of the College of Cardinals and the Cardinal Bishop of Ostia and Velletri in 1740, Giovanni Angelo went with him and served in an important role as the cardinal's representative in his diocese. Now, it just so happened that in August of 1744, while Giovanni was stationed as Cardinal Rufo's representative in Velletri, a minor battle occurred in this town as part of the War of Austrian Succession. The battle was between the Austrians and the Neapolitans, and the Neapolitans won the day. During and after the battle, Giovanni was able to aid the king of Naples, King Charles VII. They built a good relationship, which would prove to be a pretty valuable thing for the young Giovanni to have. Because he was so well-liked, when two years later there was a small diplomatic dispute between the Vatican and Naples, King Charles requested the Pope send Giovanni as the Vatican's representative. The business was concluded to everyone's satisfaction, and the Pope, Pope Benedict XIV, named Giovanni a papal chamberlain, a rank of Monsignor. When Cardinal Rufo died, the Pope named Giovanni his private secretary and later a canon of St. Peter's. Now, all this time, Monsignor Giovanni had not yet entered the clerical state, and some of his biographers suggest that he was engaged to be married or even married, but he decided in 1758 to pursue a vocation to the priesthood, called off his engagement, and was ordained a priest and named a Monsignor. He served in various secretarial roles in Rome, and then again because of his good relationship with King Charles VII of Naples, who is now King Charles III of Spain, and the whole Bourbon family, Pope Clement XIV named him a cardinal priest in 1773 and the titular abbot of a Camaldolese monastery. He moved to the monastery and was pretty zealous pastorally, but his time there was limited because in 1774 Pope Clement XIV died. Now, the conclave that met in 1774 was filled with tension due to Pope Clement XIV's suppression of the Jesuits, which we talked about last time. It was pretty scandalous in the church world. It was a total give-in to the powers that be, and the conclave was divided very firmly between pro-Jesuit and anti-Jesuit lines. Hostility was truly in the air. The conclave met for four months, since no one in the building could come to a conclusion. But Cardinal Borowski had not staked out a firm position on the Jesuit question. He had been pretty quiet, in fact, about it. And he was well-liked by France and Spain because of his relationship with the king of Spain. So eventually he was settled on as the compromise candidate. He was elected pope on February 15th, 1775, and he took the name Pius VI, deliberately choosing the name of the only canonized pope in the modern time and a pope who had to face radical changes in society and stand firm in the faith, which is a big deal. We've seen the last like six or seven episodes. The cardinals just chose the name of the pope who had named them a cardinal. This pope is now saying something very deliberate with his choice of papal name. The new Pope Pius VI was ordained a bishop, crowned pope, and opened the jubilee year of 1775 all at the same time. Now, if you're a student of world history, you know that after 1775, major events are going to take place. The pope's first encyclical was a shot fired at the modern mood, condemning the faithless philosophy of the so-called Enlightenment 
and reaffirming the need for dogmatic and cultural unity in the church. This was a hard line which many of the more open-minded Catholic theologians opposed. We can see the particularly difficult consequences for Pope Pius VI's thought in his restrictions that he placed on the freedom of religion and particularly against Jews in the papal states. The Pope saw the Enlightenment intellectuals as being the first wave of a battle against religion, and he wasn't necessarily wrong. The line from the Enlightenment philosopher Denis Diderot is sufficient to convey the intellectual assault from the time when he said that man will never be free unless the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. But before we get to the philosophes and the revolutions that are about to break out because of them, we need to first talk about anti-papal ideology coming from the absolute rulers of the world. Now, we talked last episode about how all these various kings and rulers in Europe had put so much tremendous pressure on Pope Clement XIV to suppress the Jesuits, and they very much saw themselves as being head of the church in their territories. Now, though he didn't publicly take a stance on the suppression, Pius VI was clearly on the pro-Jesuit side. Politically, he couldn't revoke the suppression, but he did what he could right away. For example, he released those who had been imprisoned with Father Ricci, the former head of the Jesuits, from jail. Though Father Ricci died in prison six weeks before his conference would be freed. Likewise, he prevented the suppression of the Jesuits in non-Catholic countries like Prussia, which kept the Jesuit order alive for a little bit. Now, one of the most important ex-Jesuits, at least for the majority of our listeners, was Father John Carroll, a former Jesuit in the United States. The U.S. had declared independence from Great Britain in 1776, and they wanted their own bishops, not just British ones governing them from afar. The former Jesuit missionaries in Maryland met to discuss the situation. They petitioned the Pope to allow them to elect a bishop rather than have one appointed, since they had just declared independence as a democratic nation. Pope Pius granted them this concession, and they elected John Carroll in the chapel at Sacred Heart Parish in what is now Bowie, Maryland. John Carroll was ordained a bishop in England and was made the first bishop of Baltimore and of the United States. But suppressing the Jesuits was not enough. As we've been talking about for many episodes, the absolute rulers of Europe were trying to remove papal prerogatives and authority and subject the church in their territories to the king. We've talked for a while about Gallicanism. It seems like we've been talking about it for forever. And we've seen how it has spread to Germany and Austria as well. In 1780, Emperor Joseph II succeeded his mother as Holy Roman Emperor, and in particular, he pushed back against the Pope, forbidding bishops to apply to the Pope at all. The state would regulate church affairs, not the Holy See. This prompted the French King Louis XVI to call the Emperor in his famous line, My brother, the sacristan. Pius VI didn't know what to do. He didn't want to break things off entirely. The Holy Roman Emperor was too strong. So he decided he would go to meet with the emperor in person, and he traveled to Vienna in 1782, the first time the pope had gone to visit another ruler in centuries. The meeting didn't go well, and the pope had to return to Rome empty-handed. Josephism, which is the Austrian version of Gallicanism would come to be called, was not stamped out. It even started popping up in Italy since the Duke of Tuscany was the brother of Joseph II, and there the pope was condemning it. But the most important aspect of the papacy of Pius VI has to be the French Revolution. In 1789, the French Estates General had taken over much of the power of the French court. Not only were they anti-monarchy, but they were anti-clerical. They went through a process of removing papal influence in France from suppressing and confiscating monastic property to the infamous Civil Constitution of the Clergy, which was passed in 1790. The Civil Constitution of the Clergy, in effect, set up a French patriotic church, which would have elected bishops and priests and would not be loyal to Rome. It changed the structures of the French dioceses. It changed priestly formation. It required clergy to submit to the National Assembly. King Louis XVI didn't want to sign it, but he was being forced to do so, so he wrote to the Pope about whether or not he could. 
Pope Pius exchanged a series of letters with the king telling him that he could not in any way support the civil constitution. The king kept writing back saying, in effect, they're going to make me. You can't, can't you just give me a little cover? But the Pope responded decidedly, no, you cannot sign this. Finally, the national government stepped in, required priests to sign the civil constitution, and make an oath of loyalty to France over the church. About half of the priests in France took the oath. And Pope Pius in 1791 basically said that those who did so were excommunicated and suspended from ministry. When he did that, France took the papal territory in Avignon back, which it had given back to Pope Clement XIV for suppressing the Jesuits, and which it holds to this day. Meanwhile, the war broke out in Europe in 1792, the War of the First Coalition, in which most of the monarchical powers in Europe squared off against revolutionary France. Now, one of the fronts in this war was in southern France and northern Italy, where Austrian and Neapolitan troops were preparing to invade southern France. But they were driven off by a young French general named Napoleon Bonaparte. A French diplomat was assassinated in Rome in 1793, which gave Napoleon cause to move his forces into the Papal States and peel away part of its territory. The Pope reached out to sue for peace and prevent French forces from coming closer to Rome, and he was forced to sign the humiliating Treaty of Tolentino in 1797, which gave away Avignon to France permanently, required the Pope to pay a massive amount of money to the French and give a big collection of Vatican art, and gave away most of the northern Papal States. After the treaty, Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's brother, was sent to Rome as an ambassador. He tried to stir up the Roman people to revolt against the Pope. This called the people to retaliate against a French general there, which then brought the French army to invade Rome itself. The French troops captured the city, exiled the Pope, and declared Rome a republic. Pope Pius was asked to renounce entirely his power over the Papal States, which he refused to do. He was then arrested by the French, dragged into exile, first to Siena, then to Florence. Soon, in 1799, he was forced to leave Florence. He was driven off by the French. Each time he settled in an Italian town, he was forced to move to the next one. In April, the French decided to bring him to France, and he moved to Valence in southern France, where he was under house arrest. By this time, he had gotten pretty sick, and all the travel and the pressure was not helping. He died August 29th, 1799 in Valence, and he was originally buried in France. But two years later, his body was brought back to Rome, and it was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. He had the fourth longest papacy in history. When he died, the French newspapers proclaimed Pius the last, believing that the papacy had finally been destroyed. But he was indeed succeeded by Pope Pius VII. We will talk about him next week. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.